0: Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will be with us today. Speak to us, open our hearts and minds, help us understand where we've come from so it can help us determine who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot in a name. There's a lot in a church name. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, all the the different denominations and the different names you will encounter in different places, places. but uh, there's a number of ways churches get their names. One of the ways they get their names is from a noteworthy practice. An example of this is Baptists. The Baptists came along and they had this conviction that we've fallen away from the New Testament model of literally taking someone and putting them under the water. It had turned into a sprinkling and various other ceremonial ways of doing it, but the Baptist said, no, the Bible says put them down. And they got the name Baptist because of that noteworthy practice. There's another group out there that got a name based on their practice, the Methodists. You've heard of them, I trust. The Methodists, well, how did they get their name? Well, because they followed this method. You see, there was a method. It was called the method, and it included Bible study and small group activity and prayer and intentionality, and if you were a follower of the method, you were a methodist. It was actually a pejorative name originally. It meant, oh, you just follow the method. But it caught on. It became a descriptor. There's another way that churches get their name. They can get their name based on their organizational structure and philosophy. An example of that is the Presbyterians. Where in the world do you get such a strange name? Well, it's from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elders. Presbyterians are ruled by councils of elders. They make the important decisions. So to be a Presbyterian is to be a part of a system that has an elder council that makes the decision. Another is the Episcopalians. That's another Greek word from the word episkopos, which means in Greek, overseer or bishop. So the, the, the structure of Episcopalians is there's a bishop and then there's, there's sub-bishops and so forth. And they're the ones that make the decisions. Then there's the ultimate American church, the congregational church. Truth is whatever the majority of us vote. That's how Congregationalists work. We make the rules by voting. Others are named for an important founding leader. The Lutherans, named after Martin Luther. The Mennonites, founder there. That's taken from the name of the founder as well. Others are named by geography. The Moravians, they came from a certain region. Greek Orthodox, Now, that's actually a compound name, and that's relevant because we're going to talk about compound names because ours is a compound name. But Greek is a location, an area, a people. Orthodox was a certain manner of belief. Others are named by an identity, belief, or theology. Church of God, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, or you may not know this one, Catholic. Catholic, the word, means universal. In other words, the identity, belief, understanding of this group is that we are the universal church. So so names come from various things, and they tend to come from things in history. But what's interesting is over time that history fades. We are called Seventh-day Adventists. that's one of those compound names. And it's built from combining a noteworthy practice with an identifying belief. The noteworthy practice is the seventh day part. And we're doing it right now. We're here on Saturday as opposed to Sunday. And that becomes a definitive descriptor of this community that we made part of our name. Now, we didn't invent that term. Before there were Seventh-day Adventists, there were Seventh-day Baptists, and to this day there's Seventh-day Church of God, there's Seventh-day Pentecostals, there's a lot of different Seventh-day groups. But that's an identifying practice, so that's the first part of our name. The second part of our name, Adventist, we didn't invent that either. Adventist is an identifying belief. But do you know the history of the name Adventist and what the identifying belief is that goes with that name. You see, what happens to us over time is we tend to lose track of some of those original identifying realities. Uh, It slips away from us as, as was said in a movie of fairly recent history. In time, history became legend, legend became myth, and some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. Are there some things about who we are that have been forgotten and lost? I have a singular purpose today. My purpose today is to put the Advent back in Adventist. That's my goal. You can tell me how I do. Now, historically, If you were an Adventist speaker and you wanted to endear yourself to the crowd, the easiest thing you could do to get an amen from an Adventist crowd, particularly a camp meeting crowd, was to walk up onto the platform and say, Brethren, Jesus is coming soon. And the room would erupt with an amen. However, I would suggest to you that that's not the automatic amen it used to be. In fact, I would suggest to you that that being an automatic amen is dying out and it's passing on with the baby boomer generation because I don't think you'll get that same automatic response from Gen X and millennials and Gen Z. Interesting what time does to a community. So, so why do we amen that, or why did we amen that Jesus is coming soon? Well, it's not so much a unique belief anymore, because there's an awful lot of evangelicals, an awful lot of fundamentalists, who will also tell you that Jesus is coming soon. The question is, do we say it for the same reasons that they say it? What puts the advent in Adventist? Now, let me define that term. Advent just means the coming of the Lord. The first advent was when Jesus came the first time. The second advent or the second coming is when Jesus comes the second time. So the word Adventist is one who believes Jesus is coming. But why do we say soon? Soon. Is it because of a strong feeling that I have in my heart? Well, you may have a strong feeling in your heart, and it may, in fact, be put there by the Holy Spirit that you have a conviction that Jesus is, in fact, coming soon. So I'm not going to make light of that. That could very well be true. But that's not what put the Advent in Adventist. Well, is it because the madness of the world all around us? I look at the world, and how can this go on? Well, okay, that's fair. I look at the world and wonder the same thing myself. But I'm also pretty sure we're not the first generation to look at the world and wonder how things could go on. And even though that might very well be true, still, that's not what put the Advent in Adventist. Is it rampant sin? Is it the multiplication of, of badness to the point that if it goes on much longer, there won't even be believers left anymore? Well, maybe you can make that argument, but that's not what made us Adventists. Signs, the year 2020, that's got us all pretty shook up. Yeah, but that's not what put Advent in Adventists. How about this one? This one may sound a little strange to you because you're not used to it. The founding of Israel in the year 1948. I'm like, what in the world would that have to do? Well, actually, most of those who claim Jesus is coming soon from an evangelical or fundamentalist position point to the founding of the nation of Israel in the year 1948 as the basis of the coming of the Lord. And it's based on a dispensational theology that places a great importance on the role of Israel in the last days. That's got nothing to do with why we're called Adventists. So what put the Advent in Adventist? Why do we have that name? Well, you might be surprised to find out that actually it's the interpretation of a passage of Scripture, specifically from the book of Daniel, chapter 8, and specifically verse 14. I will read it to you in King James because that's how it is in the history of our church. It says, and he said unto me unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's the verse that put the advent in Adventist. And if you're scratching your head, it's because we've lost track of the history that brought us here. Why that? Why that? We're talking about the three angels' messages, and we started this fall. We've been dwelling on the message of the first angel for quite a while. we talked about it for the last three Sabbaths, and I told you I needed to add a week because we need to add this piece. We've lost track of, of, of why we're called Adventists. So let me read you this first angel's message again. Revelation chapter 14, verses six and seven. Again, King James, because this is the, the language in which it got embedded into our culture. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Now I've characterized this message of the first angel as the announcement of the victory of God. And over the last three Sabbaths, we've broken down what I see to be the three main components of this message of this first angel. The first, the everlasting gospel, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how when we put our faith in Jesus, believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, on that day, we become Christian. That's what a Christian is. Names matter. Christian means person who believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who believes in the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the saving grace that comes to us as a result. That's what a Christian is, and you've gotta be that before you can be a Seventh-day Adventist. So that's the heart of the victory of God, is the victory of Jesus Christ. But to say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, raises a question, who is God? The identity statement for God is in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's non-negotiable because there's no basis for his action if he's not the creator. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the identity statement of God. And the, and the first angel says, he concludes his message with, worship him who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But then last Sabbath, we talked about the third part of the victory of God, which is the announcement that the judgment of God has come. You see, in the beginning, God creates this world, and it falls into sin. And in the middle of the story, Jesus wins the victory. Now we await the judgment of God, the moment when thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the judgment achieves. That's the point of restoration. So God creates, Jesus saves, and in the end they restore. This is the victory of God. But what we have said as Adventists, is that we are living in this time of the judgment, the last days when Jesus will soon appear. This has been our message. But why do we say now? Pastor Tim made a reference in his prayer to uh, when, when the seals are being opened in the book of Revelation, and, and I think it's the fifth seal is opened, and the souls under the altar cry out, how long, sovereign Lord, till you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're calling for the judgment. And in that moment, they're told to wait a little longer until the end has come. So at the point of the seals, we're not at the end time. But when you get to the three angels, The message of the first angel is that the judgment time has come now. Why do we say we're in that time? Well, in order for you to understand this, I got to tell you a story. It's a story about a man and about a movement and about a disappointment and about a new perspective and finally about a mission to the world. The man was named William Miller. Now he was raised like probably most children in his day, in a Christian context. He makes the comment about his youth, I was early educated and taught to pray the Lord. So as a young man, he was was taught these things, but... But according to him, he would say, I never really met Jesus for myself. And this is always the challenge, isn't it? We, we, are, we need to teach our children the faith, but at some point, they've got to transition from being our children who worship their parents' God to where they own the faith for themselves. It's the critical transition point, and it's the failure to make that transition is the reason that so many of our young people, as they get high school and on into college, drift away from the church. They've never owned it for themselves. They were there because of you, but they never owned it for themselves. There's a lot of reasons this can happen. And one of the reasons it can happen is the reason it happened to William Miller. You see, he got caught. And in reflection on those days as a young person, he said, I would spend much time in trying to invent some plan whereby I might please God when brought into his immediate presence. This is very much along with the song that Jeremy sang. How can we stand in that great day? Two ways suggested themselves to me which I tried. One was to be very good, to do nothing wrong, tell no lies and obey my parents. But I found my resolutions weak and soon broken The other was to sacrifice by giving up the most cherished objects I possessed. But this also failed me so that I was never settled and happy in mind until I came to Jesus. Do you hear his last line there? Until I came to Jesus. Many of you know this road. You've tried to be good and it just never works out. And you've tried to sacrifice but you just can't give enough because there's no sacrifice that's enough except the sacrifice Jesus has given. Now these are very key important concepts because in a couple, in the next few weeks, we're gonna be talking about the failure of man and these are two of the roots that are the failure of man. We can't stand in the presence of God unless we are with Jesus. The victory he's won for us in the middle is the one that matters. But this took a long time for William Miller to understand. It was an interesting time in which he was living. He was born in the year 1782. That's one year before the end of the Revolutionary War. He was seven years old when George Washington became the first president of the United States. It was the age of enlightenment, the age of of the philosopher Voltaire, and and David Hume, the, the Scotsman, and Thomas Paine, and Ethan Allen, the Revolutionary War hero, All of these men were what were called in that day deists. We talked about deism a couple weeks ago, but I'll tell you about it again. You see, in those days, there was no way to explain the existence of reality except to say that a God somewhere must have created it. The plausibility structure of the time did not allow you to not believe in God. We talked about plausibility structure as well. What that means is the set of beliefs that can be believed in a certain time. And in those days, there was no way to truly be an atheist because there was no way to explain reality without saying there was a God. But those who really in their hearts wanted to not believe in God had come up with this idea called deism. And what it meant was that there is a God that created the earth, but he doesn't care about it, and he's gone off, and he's not paying any attention, and everything that happens is just what happens. It wouldn't be until a little bit later when Darwin would write the origins of the species that would create a context in which modern atheism could develop. But in these days, all these men were what were called deists, and William Miller, being a thinking man, fell into that way of thinking. He got married, a woman named Lucy Smith, they moved to the state of Vermont, and he determined that there were so many problems with the Bible that he just can't believe it. In his words, he said, I determined the Bible was only the work of designing men. Therefore, I discarded it accordingly. He got rid of the Bible. He said, they're just trying to trick me into something. He left it behind. He went on to be a prominent man he, in Vermont. He was a Freemason. He was a, a Jeffersonian Democrat. He became the constable of his town and the sheriff and the justice of the peace. All of this led him to be involved in the Vermont State Militia. And when the War of 1812 against the British broke out, he was appointed a lieutenant in the militia, then promoted to captain and later captain of the regular army. But as is so often the case with those who go to war, you may well survive the war uninjured, but you don't survive it unchanged. And he came out of the war changed with his deism undone. And here's how it happened. First of all, the facing of the reality of death. What William Miller did was he thought rationally. Again, we talked about this before. He thought rationally from his presuppositions all the way to the conclusion. And being a deist, as he reflected on that way of thinking, he concluded that this life is all there is, and when it's over, it's over. And that was all fine for him as long as death was hypothetical. But when he started seeing his friends die around him, suddenly it wasn't quite so distant. He wrote a letter to his wife in the year 1814, but a short time, and like Spencer, I shall be no more. It is a solemn thought, yet could I be sure of one other life, there would be nothing terrific, but to go out like an extinguished taper is insupportable. The thought is doleful. No, rather let me cling to that hope which warrants a never-ending existence, a future spring where trouble shall cease and tears find no conveyance. He couldn't live with death anymore. And he reached back for that faith of his childhood. But that wasn't the only thing. Deism said that God didn't care what was going on. And William Miller would be involved in the Battle of Plattsburgh, where a navy and an army would come down from Canada, a British navy and army would come down from Canada and fight against an outmanned and outmatched American force. William Miller could see no way they could win, yet at the end of the day, it was the British who were going back to Canada and the Americans who had been victorious. He could find no other explanation for the day than divine intervention from this God who was not allowed to intervene. His belief system had crumbled, so when the war was over, he moved back to Lowhampton, New York, where he lived, And in a Baptist church that had once been led by his uncle, he found Jesus. He said, oh, my soul, what a Savior I discovered Jesus to be. And after this, it took some time, but eventually Miller came to the conclusion that Scripture must be a revelation from God, which led him to state that the Bible became his delight, and in Jesus he found a friend. Now, when you have been prominent, and prominent as someone who did not believe, and one who made all the arguments against faith, you make friends who agree with that. And afterward, if you go back and start believing, you can count on those friends coming to you and peppering you with the questions that you used to have. Because of this, Miller decided he needed to develop a very systematic way of studying his Bible so that he could answer the questions. And this is all very relevant because it was this method of Bible study that led him to a conclusion he never intended to make. Here was his method. Whenever I found anything obscure, my practice was to compare it with all collateral passages. And by the help of Cruden's concordance, I examined all the texts of Scripture in which were found any of the prominent words contained in any obscure portion. Then by letting every word have its proper bearing on the subject of the text, if my view of it harmonized with every collateral passage in the Bible, it ceased to be a difficulty. Now, the interesting point here is when you realize what he was doing, you will understand how he ended up where he ended up and why none of the other scholars of his day would have ended up in the same place. This method of comparing all the usages of key words was a means to try to find a harmonious answer to questions, but it was also a means by which to find some inventive ways to interpret Scripture. This method he developed in order to reduce tension that he was feeling, but in the end, this method created for him more tension than he could ever have imagined. You see, after two years of carefully following his method, and let me just say, I could only wish that we were 10% as devoted and methodical in our Bible study as he was. You imagine the time it took. In two years of this study, he came to the rather shocking and troubling conclusion that Jesus was going to come back around the year 1843 now he's a farmer who's gonna to listen to that and he figured he was crazy for this conclusion so he would spend the next five years trying to prove himself wrong what was the text that caused him to say this was well, the one I read you before Daniel 8 verse 14 and he said unto me under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed." You look at that and you say, what in the world? How did he get that from that? He spent five years trying to talk himself out of it, but by 1823 he had become certain Jesus was going to come in around 20 years. Now. Let me briefly tell you how he got that conclusion from that text. We don't have time to go into this in detail. We're not going to give you diagrams and the whole thing, but I'm going to describe it to you briefly. We spent more time on this when we did a series on Daniel some time ago, several years back. But let me briefly tell you. By comparing passages, William Miller came to the conclusion that when in prophecy time is stated as a day, In reality, it's counted as a year. Now, how in the world would he come up with that? Well, there's a couple ways he came up with that. One was through this comparative study of Scripture. There's an example in the book of Ezekiel where God tells Ezekiel to lay on one side for a certain number of days, equivalent to the years of the apostasy of Israel, and lay on his other side a certain number of days, equivalent to the years of apostasy of Judah. So a a year-for-a-day concept. There's another example of it from the life of Jesus. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. They pass through the Red Sea, right? And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus passes through the water of baptism and spends 40 days in the wilderness. What's he doing? He's redeeming the history of Israel, a day for a year. So this idea was not foreign to scripture. And so it got applied in this context and as he applied it he discovered some other things now he wasn't the only one doing this but he discovered something else the very next chapter daniel chapter 9 has a prophecy that says 70 weeks are cut off for your people now 70 times seven is 490 right so if we were applying the same principle we would say that the daniel 9 prophecy is talking about 490 years out of the 2,300. Specifically, the next 490 years from the time of Daniel were going to be significant to Israel. Actually, it gives a starting point. It says, from the order to go and rebuild Jerusalem and its wall, there will be 490 years for your people. Now, if you do the math, this order takes place in the year 457 B.C., a decree by King Artaxerxes of the Persians telling them to go and rebuild the city. Now the prophecy of the 490 years has something special about the last seven years. So if you go 483 years from 457 BC, do you know what event happens? Jesus walks to the bank of the Jordan River and is baptized by John the Baptist, 483 years after this decree, just like the prophecy said. And the prophecy also says that in the middle of the last seven, three and a half years in, Messiah will be cut off. Jesus will die three and a half years later. And then three and a half years after that, roughly, Stephen will be stoned. And after Stephen is stoned, do you remember what happens? A persecution breaks out, and the believers go out of Jerusalem and begin to teach the gospel to Gentiles. And what begins is the time of the church. It all happened exactly like the prophecy said. So he could look at history and say, this happened. So if this 490 is part of this 2,300 and we do the math, where does that come out? It comes out around the year 1843. Now there was fine-tuning on this and eventually it ended up to be a specific date, October 22, 1844. Miller was not so much a part of that, but there were others who will, who were. But, but back to the story. When he concluded this, he had great joy in his heart, but he also felt a burden that he needed to tell the world that, that the second coming was soon. Because you see, in those days, most Christians believed that humanity was getting better and better and better and better and better, and we were about to usher in a thousand years of peace. How'd that go for us? Not so good, right? That theology died out in the First World War. But that was the major theology, that the world was getting better and better, we would enter a thousand years of peace and Jesus would come at the end of it. But suddenly, here's William Miller popping up saying, no, not a thousand years from now, 20 years from now, 10 years from now. Nobody wanted to hear that. So he resisted for another eight years and in the year 1831 continuing to be pestered by God, in a moment of weakness, Miller said to God, he would perform his duty to tell this if God would open the way. To which according to Miller, the Lord replied, what do you mean open the way? And laying the perfect traps for himself, here's what William Miller said, Why, said I, if I should have an invitation to speak publicly in any place, I will go and tell them what I find in the Bible about the Lord's coming. And after this he felt good, because there's zero chance anybody was gonna ask him to come and talk about this craziness. Not knowing that in that moment, already on his way was a young man who 30 minutes later would knock on his door, Miller would innocently open his door and the young man would say, hey, I'm from Dresden. That's the town just a little ways away. Our pastor's out this week. Any chance you could come over and talk to us about the second coming stuff you've been working on? Oh, be careful when you make deals with the Lord. He may already have your doom on the way. Here's what Miller said about that. I was immediately angry with myself for having made the covenant. I rebelled at once against the Lord and determined not to go. I left the boy without giving him any answer and retired in great distress to a grove nearby. There I struggled with the Lord for about an hour, endeavoring to release myself from the covenant I had made with him, but I could get no relief. It was impressed upon my conscience, will you make a covenant with God and break it so soon? And the exceeding sinfulness of thus doing overwhelmed me. I finally submitted and promised the Lord that if he would sustain me, I would go trusting in him to give me grace and ability to perform all that he should require of me. The year was 1831. And the next 13 years would see an amazing event known as the Great Second Advent Movement. It's a real thing. It happened. Go, go, look it up. Google it. You'll find it. It was a real thing. And it was impactful in American history. It was a movement that went through churches, whether it was a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or whatever. Adventist was not a separate group. It was, I'm a Baptist Adventist or I'm not, or I'm a Methodist Adventist or I'm not. And it was all good enough until it got pretty close to the time. You can imagine the stress on the church board when this half of the room wants to raise money for the building fund and this half is saying Jesus is coming next year. Inevitably what happened was the Adventists got thrown out. Now this plays into some of the understanding of the second angel and the third angel, and we'll talk about that as we go on. But they never intended to be a group on their own, but this second Advent movement ignited and it burned white hot and it caught up a man, a sea captain named Joseph Bates. and a, a young minister in the Christian connection named James White, and a family in Portland, New York by the name of Harmon, who had a daughter named Ellen, who would later marry James. And the three of them together would form the original core of what would become the Seventh-day Adventists. Now here's the ironic point in the story. Here was God calling William Miller to do this. And he goes and does it, and this amazing movement takes place. But it's pretty obvious Jesus didn't come, isn't it? And that should give us pause sometimes when we're, when we're thinking about things. Apparently God had an intention for this movement, even though what they thought was going to happen isn't what happened. Maybe we shouldn't always be so wise in our own eyes. Maybe we should always maintain some degree of humility. Obviously, Miller got it wrong, so why in the world are we still called Adventists? You see, that was the name of those who believed Jesus was coming in 1844. There were four ways to respond after this great disappointment on October 22, 1844, when Jesus didn't come. The first group said, we got the event right and we got the time right. Jesus came. Now everybody start acting like it. And so they did weird stuff. Like they said, well, Jesus said there was no marrying and giving in marriage, so I guess, I guess we have to part ways. So people quit being married. And they said, well, wait. Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom, you have to become as little children. So they'd go to church and crawl around on the floor. Okay? It's okay to use your common sense when it comes to faith. All right? So this crowd, their take on it, everything got weird. And they fell apart and disappeared. There was another group that said, the event is right, it's about Jesus coming, we just somehow did our math wrong. Miller himself would be a part of this event, and he would live a few more years, and they would ask him, when is the Lord coming? And he'd say, every day I say, today, and today, and today, and today. This was the largest group of the Adventists. And they went on to form a couple denominations, including Advent Christian was one of the groups. These are our first cousins. But because they really had no mission, over time, they just disappeared. There's a few left. But when you have no real purpose, you don't have life. There was another group that said, we got the event wrong, we got the date wrong, the whole thing's foolishness, a whole bunch of them, and they just went back to where they came from. But there was one other group, and at first they were the smallest group. They said, no, the date is right, but somehow we messed up on what was going to happen. And they went back and they studied, and they found an answer by studying about the sanctuary and the sanctuary service. Now, we're not gonna go into that today, but know that that's where they found that answer. And they said, no, we were thinking that sanctuary being cleansed meant the earth. Maybe this means something else. And in fact, what this means is that from 1844 onward, we are in the last days. That was their conclusion. They found their story, or at least what they believed to be a representation of their story, at the end of Revelation chapter 10, where it says, I was given a scroll and told to eat it, and I ate it, and it was sweet in my mouth, but it turned my stomach sour. They said, what can this be other than our discovery of this truth in Daniel? It was so sweet to us, but now it has turned us sour. And immediately after this, the angel said, you must prophesy again. And they came to find in this the description of their experience that their work was not yet done. And in fact, when coupling that with their understanding, their growing understanding of Revelation chapter 14, they said, wait a minute. Why would the first angel come with the everlasting gospel and a message to worship the Creator if in fact probation is closed and no one else can be saved? Right? What's the point telling the gospel if it's too late? What's the point calling people to worship the Creator if it's too late? The first angel must take place before the coming of Jesus. So that means that the hour of judgment being upon us also takes place before the coming of Jesus. And that means we have a mission. Because the first angel, where is the first angel to go? To every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. They said, this is our purpose. This is our job. And they took it upon themselves. This tiniest group of the Adventists took it upon themselves to share what God had given them. And as a result of their efforts, this church has grown and taken this message to more places on the Earth faster than any Christian movement in history. You would struggle to go anywhere on Earth where there isn't at least one Seventh-day Adventist in that country. They felt the mission. And so while the Advent Christians were fading away, the Seventh-day Adventists were growing until this day when we are about the only Adventists still out there. Why do I tell you this story? Well, I tell you this story because time has a way of causing us to lose track of where we came from. Time has a way of redefining terms. The name Seventh-day Adventist has meaning. Christian first. Seventh-day being a conviction, following the commandments of God. Adventist means expecting the soon return of Jesus. It's been a long struggle for our people, but it's been remarkable. Now, and just as an aside here, as we close, because of this fixation on the coming of Jesus, that's one of the reasons we haven't always been very good when it comes to social justice and current events. Uh, An interesting point, In in the earliest days of Adventism, a lot of the ones who became a part of the Second Advent movement before that had been a part of the abolitionist movement. But they came to see the coming of Jesus as the ultimate reform, and so they embraced the coming of Jesus more than that other cause, even though that other cause was just. We have to be careful that we don't put everything in the basket of the coming of Jesus and fail to be responsible in the day in which we live. And we also need to remember that, that this message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people has brought us in this room from every nation, kin, tongue, people, but just because we're mixed doesn't mean we're integrated. We still tend to go off in our ethnic groups, even though we sit together to worship. So these are challenges to us that we have to continue to deal with. But that's not where I want to end. Here's where I want to end. This interpretation of Daniel 8, 14 is the reason we say Jesus is coming again soon and the reason we claim that we're living in the last days. This is what put the advent in Seventh-day Adventist. So my question to you is do we still believe this or have we outgrown our roots? Have we let it go? Do we still believe it? Here's a little irony, I'll own it. I'm a fifth generation proclaimer of the soon coming of the Lord. Eh, a little awkward. My children are sixth. Any grandchildren will be seventh generation. Does that mean the prophecy has failed? I don't believe it has. I believe the prophecy still holds. And I believe God intended this church to do what it's done, to put representatives around the whole of the earth who say these are the last days and Jesus is coming again soon. Maybe it isn't our job to make every person an Adventist. Maybe it's our job to be everywhere so that when the events of the end unfold, there's somebody there who knows what's going on. And maybe this is absolutely the last and wrong time for us to be giving up on what we have held so faithfully to for so long. I think we can get behind the everlasting gospel, right? We can believe in telling people about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can do that. I believe we can get behind proclaiming God as creator because if not, Jesus, it's meaningless. And I want to see judgment because I want to see God's will done on earth. I can get behind these things. And I believe God has led us here. See, this is is who we need to be. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. This is a good time to remember this coming up on the election, right? Citizenship in heaven, people. We can squabble about stuff here, but that's there. So, So what unites us is bigger than what divides us, all right? Citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're still looking today and today and today. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. This is the final working out of the victory of God. He won the victory at the cross. He will establish it at the judgment, at the completion of the judgment that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Anybody here getting old and breaking down? That would be my hand raised, not as an example, but as reality. I'm kind of looking forward to that part. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love, these are the people I love. That's, that's us, right? You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand with me on this. The everlasting gospel. God is creator. And the judgment has come. This is our message. This is why our movement didn't die. This is why it grew and spread around the world. Let's not let it go now.